Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today. That's Monday, the 29th of January, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett. Here's Carol with our first story. Hello, everyone. From the local pages today, Baby Jane Lincoln identified. The baby was found dead in a Cedar County barn in August of 1996. This article is by Thomas Geyer. More than 27 years after Baby Jane Lincoln's body was found wrapped in a plastic bag and left inside a barn east of Lisbon, Iowa, in Cedar County, the Iowa State Patrol on Saturday said the parents of the child have been found. However, investigators are still seeking the public's help in unraveling the mystery. The Iowa Patrol said in a news release that recent advances in DNA testing had allowed identifying the parents, but the Quad City Times has decided not to publish the names unless charges are filed in the case. According to the Quad City Times edition from November 12, 1996, the child's body was found Sunday, November 10, 1996, east of Lisbon, inside a white grocery-type sack that had been tied, then placed inside a larger garbage bag that was open. The bags were deposited in a barn, which sits just off busy U.S. Highway 30, sometime between midnight and 6 a.m. that Sunday. Claire Wilson found the bag on the floor near a horse stall when he was moving lumber into the barn at about 10 a.m. that Sunday. Wilson told the Quad City Times reporter Jeff Ewald at the time, it just didn't seem right in there because there's never a garbage bag in the barn. I just grabbed that bag and ripped it open, he said. The first thing I saw was feet and hands. I knew this wasn't garbage. The baby appeared to be full term, its facial features distinct. Claire Wilson's son, Tim Wilson, said at the time that the child was still hooked to the umbilical cord. Someone had just had the kid, put it in a bag, tied it up, and put it in the barn, Tim Wilson said. It's unbelievable. An autopsy showed that the baby was born alive. Then Cedar County Sheriff Keith Whitlatch dubbed the girl Baby Jane Lincoln after the Lincoln Highway, the historic name for U.S. Highway 30 near the barn where she was found. Baby Jane Lincoln is buried at County Home Cemetery near Tipton. About 30 mourners attended the service on November 14, 1996. Ewald covered the service. The Reverend Frank Hubner of Tipton Cedar Street Baptist Church led the group in prayer and a search for answers. Hubner said, Today we come together to say goodbye to someone we never had the opportunity to know. Like you, I cannot comprehend the depth of despair or depravity that would cause someone to do such a thing. The Iowa State Patrol news release said that the circumstances surrounding the death of baby Jane remained under investigation and the public was encouraged to contact the Cedar County Sheriff's Office should they possess any information that might assist in the investigation. The Times could not reach Special Agent in Charge Joe Lestina for comment on Saturday. Baby Jane Lincoln was the second deceased 
deceased child found within three months in Cedar County in 1996. On August 17th, a baby girl was found dead in a toilet at a campground near Tipton, Iowa. Authorities determined that a 12-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy were the parents of that baby who was born alive and died of exposure. No charges were filed. Both Iowa and Illinois passed safe haven legislation in 2001 to try to prevent such cases. In Illinois, a parent can take a newborn to a hospital, fire, or police station, or an emergency medical center, and leave in complete privacy without fear of prosecution. In Iowa, a baby can be taken to a hospital, health clinic, or nursing home without fear of prosecution. Jeff? It's an interesting article on Rock Island Arsenal history. The haversack was the first item produced. The earliest item manufactured at the arsenal was an 1874 dated haversack, according to Rock Island Arsenal Museum records. That is, aside from the iron beams, trusses, and hardware used to build the arsenal itself, RIA museum officials said. A haversack, also called a small pack or a musset bag, is a single-shoulder strapped bag most commonly worn by soldiers during the Civil War. Soldiers typically carried food rations, tools, extra clothes, personal items, and other needed military supplies in their haversacks out in the field. By 1875, the Rock Island Arsenal began manufacturing infantry and cavalry equipment. These items were leather and canvas goods, said George Eaton, the Arsenal's former lead historian. Think harnesses, belts, cartridge boxes, knapsacks, and so forth. The historical background of the Arsenal plus bridges. Congress first designated the Rock Island Arsenal as a federal military reserve in 1809 during territorial tensions leading up to the War of 1812. Fort Armstrong was built on the arsenal in 1816, serving as military headquarters during the Black Hawk War of 1832. In fact, George Davenport served as the militia's quartermaster during the Black Hawk Wars, earning him the honorary title of colonel and reward of $20,000. Around 1833, he built the Colonel Davenport House on the north side of the arsenal, where it remains today, overlooking the Mississippi River. While Davenport lived in this home, the city across the river was being mapped out in his name, and the first meeting to bring a railroad to the Quad Cities area took place. Years later, the arsenal became home to the first railroad bridge across the Mississippi River, the Rock Island Bridge. However, just 15 days after this wooden five-span bridge opened in April of 1856, the Effie Afton steamboat struck and destroyed a portion of the bridge. The steamboat was also destroyed, leading to the famous herd versus the Railroad Bridge Company court case. This trial was the first to pit the interests of the steamboat and railroad industries against each other, ultimately ending in a hung jury. The defense attorney in this case was none other than 
Abraham Lincoln, then a Springfield lawyer. In December of 1862, the Supreme Court ultimately decided a subsequent suit ruling for the bridge to remain operational. Today, a monument marks the location of this historic and consequential bridge after it was replaced by the first government bridge of 1872. Carol? Thank you, Jeff. And a grand parade. The Grand Parade 38 will take place March 16th. The St. Patrick's Society has announced that the Grand Parade 38, the nation's only bi-state parade, will be held Saturday, March 16th. Parade organizers are seeking participants who express the spirit of St. Patrick and Irish heritage and encourage family walking units and decorated floats. Applicants of a purely commercial theme are not permitted. The day will begin with the 10 a.m. Mass at St. Mary's. The address for St. Mary's is 2204 4th Avenue in Rock Island. The Grand Parade honoring St. Patrick will start at 11.30 a.m. at the corner of 4th Avenue and 23rd Street in Rock Island. The parade will travel through downtown Rock Island, across the Mississippi River via the Stanley Talbot, Talbot Centennial Memorial Bridge, to West 3rd Street in Davenport and proceed east through downtown Davenport to the River Center. The post-parade bash will be held at the River Center from 1 to 4 p.m. For more parade information, email spsparade at me.com. The Grand Marshal, Irish Mother of the Year, and 2024 scholarship recipient will be introduced at the gathering of the Klan Luncheon on Friday, March 15th, at the River Center. For luncheon reservations, contact VICQUINN2016 at gmail.com. For a full detail of both events, go to stpatsqc.com. All nominations for the Irish Mother of the Year must be original letters of approximately 150 years. A nominee should be involved in family, church, and community, have a good sense of humor, and demonstrate pride in Irish ancestry. The nominee also must be able to attend the St. Patrick's Society gathering of the Klan Luncheon on March 15th and the Grand Parade 38 and the Post Parade Bash on March 16th. Nominations must be received by February 28th. Mail nominations to the St. Patrick's Society, attention, Irish Mother nomination, Post Office Box 4487, Davenport, Iowa, Five two eight zero eight. The St. Patrick's Society will award a one thousand five hundred dollars scholarship at the annual gathering of the Klan Luncheon. Applications are available from high school counselors or from Matt Wissing at wissingm at yahoo dot com, or you can call five six three two six five. 9353. Applications also are available at stpatsqc.com. Eligible applicants must be related to a current member of the St. Patrick's Society and be able to give evidence of the ability to pursue a college or university education as substantiated by 
grade point average class standing, and SAT, SAT, and ACT scores. Involvement in extracurricular school and community activities also will be considered. Letters of recommendation from educators, counselors, employers, and others are helpful. Applicants are not judged on basis of need. Applications must be returned and received by February 27th. Mail to St. Patrick's Society Scholarship, Post Office Box 4487, Davenport, Iowa, 52808. Turning now to some Iowa news. School safety. Money for safety is largely unspent. A June 2022 announcement was addressed to parents horrified by the massacre at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Iowa would spend $75 million in federal pandemic relief funds to improve school building security. Citing an urgent need to act after Uvalde and shootings outside a high school and in a church in Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds said the state would award up to $50,000 each to 1,500 schools to fix vulnerabilities. Like many other Republicans, she rebuffed calls for stricter gun control while embracing efforts to harden schools. More than 19 months and two deadly Iowa school shootings later, the money only recently started to trickle out with the vast majority still unspent. This was partly because local officials struggled to meet state and federal requirements to complete their applications, according to records reviewed by the Associated Press. Contractors helping run the program, meanwhile, have received millions. The AP found that most schools statewide have yet to receive funding, including those in Perry a city of 8,000 people, where a January 4th school shooting left two dead and several injured. A state agency last week sent a representative to help Perry District officials finish their application for a $150,000 grant through Reynolds' program. The district had started the process more than a year ago, but didn't complete the paperwork. After the tragedy in Perry, we are continuing to look for opportunities to make the process more efficient and effective, said Allie Bright, spokesperson for the Iowa Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, which oversees the program. Colin Crompton, a spokesperson for the government, noted that until a district submitted an application, the state could not take any action. Perry's $150,000 is among $20.6 million the state has awarded for upgrades at hundreds of school buildings across Iowa, but payments for completed work have been far less to date. Bright said Friday that as of January 19th, the program had paid $950,000 to 18 school districts for improvements at 43 buildings most of them small and rural. The district in Gilbert uh, received the most, $194,000, which went towards surveillance cameras, new entry systems, and door controls. Winfield Mount Union Community School District, which recently announced it would cut back to a four-day school week in the next academic year, added 
cameras and panic buttons with its $100,000. Other eligible expenses include metal detectors, locks, alarms, and notification systems, security highlighting, reinforced doors and windows, barriers, and fencing. Perry officials expressed interest in the grant in 2022 and completed assessments on buildings as required a year ago. Superintendent Clark Wicks didn't return messages seeking comment on why the application was not finished before the Perry High School shooting. It's unknown whether additional security would have prevented 17-year-old Dylan Butler from opening fire in the cafeteria before classes began. Investigators haven't revealed how Butler obtained the shotgun and handgun he used. Perry's superintendent has credited an assistant principal with activating an emergency alert that resulted in with quick response by police, but who found Baker dead, or Butler dead. Perry elementary and middle school students who, were returned, who returned to school this week saw tighter security, including uniformed officers and limited entry points. Some uh, parents have called for additional measures, such as metal detectors, and district officials are considering how to spend that grant money. Similar concerns were raised after the January 2023 shooting at Starts Right Here a Des Moines alternative school for at-risk youth. Preston Walls was sentenced last week to 65 years in prison for killing fellow students 18-year-old Johnny Dameron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr. Relatives of Dameron and Carr are suing the school, alleging inadequate security. That school, like others affiliated with Des Moines District, the state's largest, has not received any grant funding. Bright said Starts Right Here was not eligible for the program because it's not accredited, but that her agency was working with the school to apply for a different federal security grant. Des Moines School spokesman Phil Rader said the district needed to update a purchasing policy to meet federal requirements to receive the roughly $3 million it requested. The school board is expected to do that in February. Iowa authorities have reported a surge in school threats since the Perry shooting, which killed 6th grader Amir Joliffe and Principal Dan Marburger and injured several others. Threats in West Des Moines, Davenport, and Lenox led to criminal charges, and another briefly shut down the St. Ansgar district. Thirteen districts were targeted last week by swatting calls in which someone makes a prank call to emergency services to prompt a response at a particular address. Against a drumbeat of threats and shootings, security funding is popular with lawmakers and parents, even as researchers debate whether the measures reduce gun violence. Iowa's 327 districts and 183 non-public and independent schools still have until October 1st to apply, and most have started that process, Bright said. Once approved, they have through 2024 to designate money for projects and 2025 to get work completed and seek reimbursement. The maximum per building is $50,000 regardless of enrollment.
The money's coming from Iowa's share of the American Rescue Plan Act, signed by President Biden early, nearly three years ago, which was designed to help states recover from the coronavirus pandemic. That funding source is appropriate, Iowa officials say, because violent crime and school safety concerns increased during the pandemic. Reynolds said she did not believe any law could have prevented the Perry shooting, and spokesperson Colin Crompton said Reynolds is proud of the state's work to improve school safety. He noted that Iowa was, has purchased 1,200 emergency radios for schools, started a tip line where threats could be anonymously reported, and provided thousands with active shooter training. Several states have similar school safety programs, but few use American Rescue Plan Act funding. Two that have, Ohio and New Hampshire, awarded grants in 2022. Consultants and vendors have received most of Iowa's spending so far, including $5.2 million to Tetra Tech, an engineering business that conducted 1,260 building assessments to identify weaknesses that projects would fix. The state has paid $1.6 million to AG Witt, a company helping run the program with Iowa's Homeland Security Department. The agency said it was too small to handle the workload. It's a federal grant, so of course there's obviously a lot of little headaches that go with it, Department Director John Benson told applicants last year. Some assessments emailed by TetraTech were lost in the spam folders of school administrators or faced several weeks or months of delays getting the state's review and approval. A state official apologized to school officials during a meeting last year for that backlog. Another requirement is slowing down projects. Physical changes to schools must be approved for compliance with Iowa's fire code. That's taking three months or longer for buildings inspected by the state's fire marshal's office, which was recently moved to a new department. One student who filed who who fled jazz band rehearsal when gunshots rang out at Perry said she will feel safe going back when high school resumes next week. The threat to our school was gone the day of the shooting, Rachel Karras said. Carol? Thank you, Jeff. And an article from the front page of the Quad City Times. Biden, U.S. shall respond to fatal drone strike. President Joe Biden said Sunday that the U.S. shall respond after three American troops were killed and dozens more were injured in an overnight drone strike in northeast Jordan near the Syrian border. Biden blamed Iran-backed militias for the first U.S. fatalities after months of strikes by such groups against American forces across the Middle East since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Biden, who was traveling in South Carolina, asked for a moment of silence during the appearance at a Baptist church's banquet hall. Biden uh, said, We had a tough day last night in the Middle East. We lost three brave souls in an attack on one of our bases. After the moment of silence, Biden added, And we shall respond. 
With an increasing risk of military escalation in the region, U.S. officials were working to conclusively identify the precise group responsible for the attack, but they have assessed that one of several Iranian-backed groups was behind it. Biden said in a written statement that the United States will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, We will take all necessary actions to defend the United States, our troops, and our interests. Iran-backed fighters in East Syria began evacuating their posts, fearing U.S. airstrikes, according to Omar Abu Leah, and a Europe a Europe-based activist who heads the Deir Ezzor 24 media outlet. He told the Associated Press that the areas are the strongholds of Mayadeen and the Bukamal. U.S. Central Command said at least 34 troops were injured by the one-way attack drone, with eight flown out of Jordan for follow-up care. It described the eight as being in stable condition. The large drone struck a logistics support base in Jordan known as Tower 22. It is along the Syrian border and is used largely by troops involved in the advise and assist mission for Jordanian forces. Central Command said about 350 U.S. Army and Air Force personnel were deployed to the base. The three who were killed and most of the wounded were Army soldiers, according to several U.S. officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to give details not yet made public. One moment while I find my page. Sorry. Uh, the small installation, which Jordan does not publicly disclose, includes U.S. engineering, aviation logistics, and security troops. Austin said the troops were deployed there to work for the lasting defeat of ISIS. Three officials said the drone struck near the troops' sleeping quarters, which they said explained the high casualty count. The U.S. military base at the Al-Tamf in Syria is just 12 miles north of Tower 22. The Jordanian installation provides a critical logistical hub for U.S. forces in Syria, including those at Al-Tamf, which is near where the borders of Syria Iraq and Jordan intersect. In a statement on Jordan's state-run Petra News Agency, the country, quote, condemned the terrorist attack that targeted the U.S. troops. That report described the, the drone strike as targeting an outpost on the border with Syria and said it did not wound any Jordanian troops. Jordan will continue to counter terrorism and the smuggling of drugs and weapons across the Syrian border into Jordan and will confront with firmness and determination anyone who attempts to attack the security of the kingdom, the statement attributed to Mohammed Mumadin, a government spokesman, said. U.S. troops long have used Jordan, a kingdom bordering Iraq, Israel, and the Palestinian territory of the West Bank, Saudi Arabia, and Syria as a basing point. Some 3,000 American troops typically are stationed across Jordan. Since the war in Gaza began on October 7th, Iranian-backed militias have, a, have struck American military installations in Iraq more than 60 times and in Syria more than 90 times, 
with a mix of drones, rockets, mortars, and ballistic missiles. The attack Sunday was the first targeting American troops in Jordan during the Israel-Hamas war and the first to result in the loss of American lives. Scores of U.S. personnel have been wounded, including some with traumatic brain injuries during the attack. The militias have said that their strikes are in retaliation for Washington's support for Israel in the war in Gaza and that they aim to push U.S. forces out of the region. The U.S. in recent months has struck targets in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen to respond to attacks on American forces in the region and to deter Iran-backed Houthi rebels from continued to threaten commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Senator Jack Reed, a Democrat from Rhode Island who heads the Senate Armed Services Committee, said, I am confident the Biden administration will respond in a deliberate and proportional manner. Jeff? Let's turn now to the opinion section of today's Quad City Times. The subject is how to help the homeless. The first uh, opinion is expressed by Karen Dolan, who is a poverty expert at the Institute for Policy Studies. Her editorial is entitled, Invest in Affordable Units and Raise Minimum Wage. She writes, Homelessness in the United States surged by a record of tw- by a record twelve percent between January twenty two and January twenty three, according to a report by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. In the world's wealthiest nation, how does this happen, and what can be done to remedy it? The primary reason people are homeless is straightforward: they can't afford a place to live. This crisis isn't new. For decades, affordable housing supply has failed to keep pace with demand. And the minimum wage has not kept pace with the rising cost of living and inflation over the past 50 years. According to a report by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, every state in the country lacks a sufficient supply of affordable housing. They found a shortfall of more than 7 million affordable rental units for people at or below the poverty level or for whom rent would consume more than 30% of their income. The pandemic laid this crisis bare, but it also showed us solutions. In the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found two million households were at least three months behind in their mortgage, an increase of 250% from the prior year, and more than eight million renters were behind on their rent. Lower-income Americans of all races were affected, but the risk of losing housing fell disproportionately on black and Latin communities, which had lower levels of wealth, and home ownership before the pandemic due to his historic or a history of systemic racism. They were also more likely to lose employment during the lockdowns in 2020. 
Fortunately, lawmakers responded to the pandemic by expanding the social safety net. Alongside stimulus payments, expanded unemployment, and the expanded child tax credit, they imposed eviction moratoriums and emergency rental assistance programs. These measures worked. Many low-income families could stay housed, and homelessness actually dropped. Unfortunately, the measures were temporary. When they lapsed, homelessness shot right back up. While the economic effects of the pandemic have erased or have eased, the causes of the housing crisis remain. According to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, about half of all U.S. workers can't afford a one-bedroom rental, and a full-time worker making minimum wage can't afford a two-bedroom rental. Many households are just one missed paycheck or unexpected bill away from missing rent payments, facing eviction, or falling into homelessness. So, what can be done? First, we need to invest in affordable housing for those with the lowest incomes. We have to invest in upkeep and repairs. It's not enough to build it and forget it. Housing stock must be maintained to be livable. Congress should increase funding for the Tenant-Based Rental Assistance Program, which assists low-income renters. Resources also must help fight unnecessary evictions and keep families in their homes. We must invest in a permanent emergency rental assistance program and include housing grants for communities with the greatest need and the Housing Choice Voucher Program must get more funding. We also need a livable housing wage of $28.58 per hour so that full-time minimum wage workers can afford a modest two-bedroom rental unit. Safe, stable, affordable housing is foundational to a healthy, productive society. It improves children's educational attainment and physical, behavioral, and mental health. It helps adults get and maintain better paying jobs, improves their health outcomes, and builds wealth. A securely housed population benefits our whole society. Housing should be considered a human right for all, not just a privilege for some. We know what to do. now. Let's do it. And another How to Help the Homeless article. This one is entitled Housing Alone Won't Cure Addiction and Mental Illness. And its author is Christopher Kelton, who is a research fellow in housing and homelessness with the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. San Francisco's Mission Hotel held a joint funeral service in March 2021 for seven residents. The hotel is one of the sites leased by the city to house the unsheltered population, and residents' deaths have become so frequent in these facilities that joint memorials have become the norm. Though the causes of the deaths vary, drug overdoses have been responsible for 40% of those memorialized these former hotel residents were homeless, and the city helped them by providing them with permanent shelter. Considering homelessness, by its strict definition, 
This would seem to solve the problem. People who previously did not have a home now do. But for those suffering from trauma, mental illness, and substance abuse, hopelessness, homelessness is a symptom of deeper problems. This is especially true in the age of fentanyl. We can warehouse every person living on the streets today and hang mission accomplished banners above the doors of their new homes. Still, we would eventually discover we had uncorked the champagne prematurely. Since the 2009 passage of the Homeless Emergency Assistance and Rapid Transition to Housing, known as HEARTH, H-E-A-R-T-H, Act, the federal government's approach to solving homelessness has been guided by the Housing First philosophy. Fifteen years later, we should recognize the inadequacy of this approach. The Department of Housing and Urban Development's recent Homeless Assessment Report showed a 12% increase nationally in the number of homeless from 2022 to 2023. Housing First is based on the theory that most of the problems from which homeless individuals suffer, such as alcohol or drug addiction, are a product of their homelessness rather than the cause. Proponents believe these ancillary issues would improve if they had had a stable residence. Housing First policies have focused on the rapid rehousing of homeless individuals, with the bulk of federal funds going to so-called permanent supportive housing. In theory, these facilities, such as San Francisco's Mission Hotel, include support services which are frequently neglected in practice. By federal law, these facilities cannot impose sobriety requirements on residents. Housing First has primarily amounted to an out-of-sight, out-of-mind solution to homelessness. People die indoors rather than on the sidewalk. The fentanyl crisis has exposed the callousness of this policy. For example, University of Pennsylvania researchers found that 56% of fatal overdoses among New York City's homeless population occurred in permanent supportive housing. The housing-centered approach is clearly failing. When we recognize the relationship between addiction and homelessness, it is easier to understand why the unsheltered population continues to grow. The homeless encampments found in many major cities are often surrounded by open-air drug markets, which are a magnet for addicts. According to San Francisco Mayor London Breed, 60% of the people offered housing by her outreach team refused to accept help and move indoors. Some already had housing but chose to stay on the streets. In the early 20th century, Nels Anderson, a formerly homeless sociologist who became the nation's leading expert on homelessness, explained this phenomenon. Unlike users of alcohol or cocaine who could go without their drugs for lengthy periods, he wrote, users of heroin and morphine are not able to separate themselves from the source of supply for so long a time. Fentanyl maintains an even tighter hold on opioid addicts than heroin to point that most users will neglect to seek treatment without some form of compassionate intervention. 
Affordable housing is an essential component of the homeless solution, homelessness solution, but it's by no means sufficient. West Virginia, where homelessness is rare, but addiction is rampant, should serve as a grim reminder that substance abuse and overdose deaths do not disappear behind welcome mats. Jeff? There uh, are, seem to be no obituaries or uh, funeral announcements published in the Quad City Times today, so we'll turn to sports. Watching Clark will require the stream. Next Iowa women's basketball t team is available on Peacock. The Caitlin Clark Show, also known as Iowa Women's Basketball, will be on Peacock on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Please do not email me in all caps asking why, says Dave Selvig, the columnist for the Quad City Times Sports. It is stupid. I agree with everyone who has emailed or called me and said exactly that. Putting the brightest star in basketball on something named after an exotic bird makes no sense. Iowa, the Big Ten Conference, and NCAA should have demanded, or at least strongly urged, that Clark's games be broadcast on regular cable. There's one reason and one reason only the Iowa women are being hidden on Peacock. Money. In 2022, the Big Ten fleeced CBS, Fox, and NBC out of $8 billion to broadcast their basketball and football games. The seven-year pact started last year. Each school, according to industry estimates, will see a cash windfall of between $80 and $100 million per year, thanks to the enormous package. That number, however, it ultimately lands, it is up dramatically from the $50 million per, per year the schools get with the previous media deal. All that, though, makes it much easier to buy out a failed coach or several million player, or excuse me, for several million dollars, or pay your coordinators in football salaries that soar into seven figures. It also means those media companies can put those games anywhere they want. For NBC, that means squeezing an extra $5.99 per month out of those of us who pay for Peacock. I could not name you a non-sports-related show on Peacock. I get it for the sports, and that's it. Back in the day, which was not all that long ago, you'd pay through the nose for cable TV, but that'd be it. Now, they're coming for more money out of other holes for programming that used to be offered on your typical cable company or satellite package. I wish I had the spine to sever all my cords. Unfortunately, I do not. I like to watch sports on TV on the rare occasions I'm home. For TV execs sitting in boardrooms wearing three-piece suits, putting Caitlin Clark and the Hawkeyes on a streaming service does make financial sense. People want to watch the West Des Moines product. She's an all-time player chasing marquee records, so let's put those games on a platform where people are forced to pay more. 
to be able to watch her chase and break those records, such as Pete Maravich's all-time scoring mark of 36.67, you'll have to pay up or keep doing so. Of, of the Hawkeyes' last nine games, four are scheduled to be on Peacock. That'll be good for NBC Universal, Peacock's parent company, but it's not good for the game or women's basketball specifically. When you get a LeBron or a Mahomes or an Otani, or in this case, a Caitlin, you make it easier to watch them, not harder. Yes, I know, that's pie in the sky, so I'll just shut up and keep paying for the stream. Carol? Thanks, Jeff. Um, and... A new offensive coordinator, Lester, set to guide Iowa's offense. Former Western Michigan University coach, football coach, Tim Lester, is set to be hired as Iowa's new offensive coordinator. The 46-year-old Lester, a native of Wheaton, Illinois, spent 2023 as an offensive analyst for the Green Bay Packers. At Iowa, Lester replaces Brian Ferentz, son of head coach Kirk Ferentz, who was told in late October by Iowa Athletic Director Beth Goetz that he would not return after the 2023 season. Despite winning 10 games and advancing to a January 1st bowl game last season, the Hawkeyes ranked last nationally in total offense and second to last in scoring. Lester would become just the fourth offensive coordinator in Kirk Ferentz's 25-year tenure leading the Hawkeyes, joining Ken O'Keefe, Greg Davis, and Brian Ferentz. Lester went 37-32 with three bowl appearances at Western Michigan, his alma mater, before being fired after the 2022 season. He previously served as offensive coordinator at Syracuse in 2015. Lester was a star quarterback in his playing days at Western Michigan. He began his coaching career in 2000. Other places he coached included Elmhurst State Joseph's, Indiana, North Central, and Purdue. With the Hawkeyes, Lester inherits an offense that returns quarterback Cade McNamara, star tight end Luke Latchey, a handful of quality running backs, and most of last season's offensive line, plus freshman All-American lineman Caden Proctor, who transferred to Iowa from Alabama just last week. Iowa is scheduled to start the 2024 season at home against Illinois State on August 31st. And ESPN was first to report Lester's hiring. Did you know that, Jeff? <laughs> I did not. Uh, the Super Bowl is set. In the AFC Championship game yesterday, Kansas City defeated Baltimore 17-10. Mahomes leads the Chiefs back to the Super Bowl. The defense helps Kansas City earn their fourth trip in five years. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey were at their magnificent best in the first half, and Kansas City's defense delivered another masterpiece against Lamar Jackson in Baltimore 
helping the Chiefs reach the Super Bowl for the fourth time in five years with a 17-10 victory in the AFC Championship game on Sunday. Kelsey caught 11 passes for 116 yards and a touchdown. And now the big question at next month's Super Bowl in Las Vegas is whether his girlfriend, Taylor Swift, will be able to make it there in the middle of her tour. The pop star was on hand again Sunday, and the 34-year-old Kelsey was at his best. The Chiefs are still the Chiefs, said Kelsey, who broke Jerry Rice's career record for receptions in the postseason. And believe it, we've got to fight for your right to party. Believe it, baby, we're going to Las Vegas. Kansas City, whose record is 14-6, and will face San Francisco on February 11th, and a win would make the Chiefs the first team to win it all in back-to-back seasons since the New England Patriots 19 years ago. Swift's presence has turned the Chiefs into even more of a glamour team than they already were. But it's been more of a blue-collar performance on the field this season. Aside from Kelsey, Mahomes hasn't had the receiving playmakers he's enjoyed in past years. Instead, the defense has been a big part of why Kansas City won the AFC West and eventually prevailed in two straight road playoff games against Buffalo and Baltimore to win the conference. It's been a heck of a year. We've been underdogs the last few games, Mahomes said. We never feel like underdogs. We've got a lot uh, we, we've got a lot of guys on this team that know how to win. When the playoffs get around, they're here to make it happen. And now we're in the Super Bowl. The job's not done. The Chiefs led 17-7 at halftime, and Justin Tucker's 43-yard field goal with 2.34 to play was the only scoring of the second half. Baltimore kicked deep after that, and on third and nine, Mahomes connected with Marquez Valdez-Scantling, one of his most maligned receivers, on a 32-yard pass that sealed the game. Mahomes went 30 of 39 for 241 yards and a touchdown. Carol? And Purdy and the 49ers rally past the Lions. Brock Purdy threw for 267 yards and a touchdown, and the San Francisco 49ers rallied from 17 points down at halftime to beat the Detroit Lions 34-31 on Sunday to reach the Super Bowl. The 49ers, who are 14-5, scored 17 points in an eight-minute span of the third quarter to tie the NFC Championship game and then pulled away in the fourth quarter to earn a rematch against Kansas City after losing to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl four years ago. San Francisco mounted the fourth comeback ever from 17 points down or more in a conference title game thanks to some plays by Purdy and bad mistakes from the Lions, who are 14-6, and six, including two failed fourth downs in field goal range. Detroit fell short of reaching the first Super Bowl in franchise history. We played a, we played as bad, we played as bad as the last half as we could, but we were still within 17. There's plenty of points there you can make up, Niners coach Kyle Shanahan said. The D shut them out there in the second half of this dude right next to me. Purdy made it happen. Then 
after being questioned about whether he could lead a comeback, Purdy has now done it twice in as many weeks. He engineered a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter to beat Green Bay last week, then had an even bigger comeback against the Lions. Christian McCaffrey had two touchdown runs and a little-used backup Elijah Mitchell scored on a three-yard run to make it 34-24 with three minutes and two seconds to play as the Niners got over the conference title game hump after losing the past two seasons. Shanahan said, There's been unfinished business for a while, man. Our team was set out was set out for this a long time ago. It's been a long year to get this point, but we got it done today. It was hard at the beginning, but the character we have in our team, the type of guys we have, we can't wait to get to Vegas, man. The Niners blew a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter of the NFC Championship game against Los Angeles Rams two years ago, then were forced to play much of last year's title game loss at Philadelphia without a functioning quarterback after Purdy injured his yellow elbow on the opening drive and forced stringer Josh Johnson, left with a concussion early in the third quarter. But San Francisco managed to make the long journey back to the stage and now is in position to deliver the franchise its record-tying sixth Super Bowl title and first since the 1994 season. A magical season for the Lions ended in heartbreak. Detroit remains the only team to play every season of the Super Bowl era without reaching the ultimate game. This looked like it could be the year to end that drought when Detroit won back-to-back -back playoff games after winning just one in the previous 56 seasons. But the Lions couldn't finish the job despite holding a 24-7 halftime lead. San Francisco settled for a field goal on the opening drive of the second half before the game completely flipped in a four-minute span. Detroit coach Dan Campbell opted to go for it on fourth and two from the San Francisco 28, but Josh Reynolds couldn't hold onto a pass from Jared Goff, leading to a turnover on downs. Jeff? This week in local college hoops, <clears throat> it's a big week for the Braves. It's a busy week of makeup games for both Blackhawk College basketball teams. The men have picked up rescheduled games on Monday at Spoon River and Saturday this week. Saturday's schedule will be making up women's and men's games against McHenry College that were snowed out earlier this month. The women play at 1 on Saturday and the men at 3 in the Building 3 gym on the Moline campus. On Tuesday, during the standalone Women's Arrowhead Conference game against Sauk Valley, the BHC program is hosting its Coaches vs. Cancer game. There'll be a number of ways to contribute through a silent auction that is scheduled online, uh, that is scheduled, online donations, or the ability to pledge a donation based on a player's point production in the game. This week's men's games, Monday, Blackhawk at Spoon River at 6 p.m. Wednesday, Augustana at Wheaton, 7 p.m. And Calumet at St. Ambrose, 7.30. Thursday, Blackhawk at Kishwaukee Community College at 7.30 p.m. Saturday, Carthage at Augustana at 7.15. St. Ambrose at Judson, 3 p.m and McHenry County at Blackhawk at 3 o'clock. 
This week's women's games, Tuesday, Sauk Valley Community College at Blackhawk at 5, Wednesday, Elmhurst at Augustana at 7, Calumet at uh, St. Ambrose at 5.30, and Thursday, Blackhawk at Kishwaukee at 5.30, Saturday, Carthage at Augustana at 5, St. Ambrose at Judson at 1, and McHenry Community College at Blackhawk at 1 o'clock. And uh, that brings us to the end of the Quad Cities Times for today. I'm Jeff Cassett, and my partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockhart. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.